Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm with Paul Munnies, who's been following the fate of a state question that would legalize recreational marijuana for adults 21 and over here in Oklahoma. Now, the state Supreme Court recently ruled that there was not enough time for state question 820 to make it on the November ballot. Paul, tell us why the justices said the backers of state question 820 had run out of time. Yeah, so the the Backers wanted to uh, put this on the ballot and filed with the Supreme Court about a month ago um, to get it on there. But the justices at that time said, wait a minute, you still got a, a last challenge period. It's 10 business days to go through some of the challenges on the signature verification period and their rewritten uh, summary of the question itself that would appear on the ballot. And so um, that 10-day uh, period has run out. There was four challenges. Um, but when that ran out, there was not enough time to print ballots and send them to overseas voters. So the justices said, no, sorry, not not this November's election. Now, voter-driven initiative petitions face delays all the time. What was different about this one? That's right. Yeah, there's multiple choke points kind of along the way for any kind of initiative petition. Uh, obviously, you have to collect signatures at a certain threshold. Uh, this one for statewide question needed about 94,000, and there was 160,000 or so signatures turned in. Um, but specifically, this one had was the first time to go through kind of a new process uh, under the law from 2020 um, that would basically have them not only count the signatures, but verify that each person was a registered voter. Now, why did uh, the Secretary of State use an outside vendor to uh, check those registrations and verify the signatures? Yeah, so that 2020 law um, basically allowed the Secretary of State to to gain technology to do this new process for them. Uh, But a lot of people at the time did not know that it would actually go to an outside vendor itself. They thought it would stay in-house with the Secretary of State's office. So they actually contracted with uh, Western Petition Systems, which is a uh, company that was started by Bill Shepard, who runs the, the Sooner Poll. And so that was a surprise to a lot of folks, and that all the petitions went to Shepard's offices for counting and verification. And uh, how did that affect the process? So, yeah, that was a, f- a first-time process by this new vendor. Um, you know, they were promised, the campaign folks were promised probably two or three weeks at the most to figure this out and count it and verify it. It ended up taking about seven weeks to get this process uh, fully done. Why so much longer? Um, partly it was because there was some issues with the equipment. There was some temporary employees that were kind of cycling in and out that were used there. And then there was just, um, they basically went through the process, counted everything, then went back and did the verification on the voter registration when a lot of people thought that would be going doing, doing that at the same time, kind of a batch process of counting and checking, counting and checking. And that was just not done at that point. Uh, Western Petition Systems got a $300,000 a year contract uh, with the state, as I recall, whether they verify a single signature or verify a million signatures, right? Um, Have they ever done this before? Do they have any other clients? No, this was the first time that Oklahoma has done this and the first time that Western Petition Systems had done this as well. Uh, And in fact, they were supposed to run kind of a a test run for for kind of sample um, signature pages before. Um, We asked for records of that test run. Uh, Neither the Secretary of State's office um, or anybody else with Shepard's office said that they had 
documentary proof of that test run, and that might have given them some indication of how quickly it might have gone. Also, another part of this is the difference between going out and collecting signatures in the field with the papers kind of being held and, and handled and, and hot weather, uh, and then coming back to the office and wanting kind of a pristine copy to go through a scanner to get through the system. Now, uh, you said there was no documentation of a test run, but uh, the state said it, it happened, right? They said it occurred, but there's no, no uh, nothing uh, on paper showing it happened. That's right. There was no kind of after-action report saying this took this long, but they said it was done, and they said they were happy with that test run. Now, there was a lot of speculation on social media that uh, Governor Stitt was somehow involved in uh, weighing down the process to to keep state question 820 off this year's ballot, uh, maybe to uh, affect voter turnout in some way. What did you find in your reporting? Yeah, so we kind of asked for, for emails kind of backing it up. We're still waiting on some of those records, but we've found no evidence so far that uh, there was any direct pressure by the governor's office to do anything with the Secretary of State to kind of slow the process down. What it seems like kind of um, is it just a new process, an untested vendor that hadn't done this before, and a lot longer uh, than it should have taken probably. Uh, can you give us a sense of how a recreational marijuana question might have affected turnout had it been on the ballot? Yeah, so I kind of put on my uh, speculation hat here in a hypothetical, but, um, you know, given what happened in 2018 with the state question for medical marijuana, um, that enjoyed pretty broad support across the political spectrum. Uh, it passed with 57% of the vote then, um, um, but also it was not as popular in some of the western rural areas. So if you can kind of take some of that and read the tea leaves on what might have happened uh, there were a lot of single-issue voters that came out for medical marijuana in that summer referendum in 2018. Um, that would probably drive some turnout. Of course, it may not be interested in the governor's race or any other high-profile races this year. Uh, probably would have definitely had additional turnout, but it's hard to say if it would have benefited Stitt, who is pretty strong in rural areas already, and they're not super excited about the prospect of recreational marijuana in some rural areas either. Um, but you said that in 2018, the medical marijuana vote was really, uh, that was a pretty popular initiative on both sides of the aisle and independence and, right, it was uh, kind of everybody on board with that one. Uh, if we assume the same sort of turnout for recreational marijuana, uh, in the high-profile races that we have here in the midterms, is that more likely to benefit Republican candidates, Democrat candidates, or or is it just going to be a wash? Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. I would say mostly I'd say a wash at this point just because it would probably drive out some additional rural turnout that may benefit somebody like Governor Stitt. Um, of course, there's other issues going on in the governor's race with uh, school vouchers, which obviously is, is not super popular in some rural areas either. But um, we did have a, a decent uh, undervote in 2018 on medical marijuana when people only came out to vote for that proposition, and that, that was a primary election in that June uh, 2018 election. So it's kind of hard to say. Uh, it definitely probably would have brought some more people out on both sides of the issue, whether or not they want uh, recreational marijuana or think that the current medical program is probably sufficient enough. Uh, what What's the latest on medical marijuana since it passed? Yeah, so we've, we've basically uh, now almost four years um, into that program for medical marijuana. Uh, obviously, we've, we've seen thousands of dispensaries pop up. Um, a lot of them have come in, gone into business and got out of business again. We've seen thousands of grow operations or, across the state. Uh, there's obviously been some growing pains with that too. Um, we've kind of had some issues with uh, people 
buying licenses on behalf of others and kind of doing straw um, licenses. So they've kind of clamped down on some of that as well. And also the the seat to sell tracking system, which is supposed to um, track every point of the process has been slow to kind of roll out uh, because it's been mired in some lawsuits. It started this year. There's already been some issues with vendors that have gotten fines um, for not keeping up with that that system either. So it's it's a little rocky still, but um, you know lawmakers are committed to still kind of making that program work well. Um, and there is a, a moratorium right now on commercial licenses. You can't get a new license if you want to do any kind of new business on that. But patient licenses are still available. And um, there's about Right now, about 10% of Oklahoma's population has a medical marijuana patient license. 820 won't be on this year's ballot. I, I can't remember the last time we had a, a general election without uh, an initiative uh, petition measure on the ballot. Uh, how unusual is that? That's right. We, we checked all the records going back for, for quite a while since statehood, and uh, you'd have to have voted in the, the 1924 election, uh, or not voted in that election for something like that. Um, that was the last time we found there was nothing in a general election year to vote on for a state question. And of course, remember that state questions can come from two avenues. They can come from uh, citizen efforts that come have petitions and signatures. And the legislature can also put a state question on the ballot for voters too. But we went back almost 100 years for the last time that has not happened. What's next for recreational marijuana as a state question? Yeah, so voters will get to vote on this at some point. Um, it's still unclear exactly when. Um, at the very least, uh, it will be on the ballot by November 2024. But of course, uh, the governor can call a special election at any time in 2023 uh, or any time in 2024 that would go along with maybe the presidential preference election or a primary or a runoff election um, in 2024. So voters will get a chance to get on this uh subject and vote on it, but it won't be anytime soon. It definitely won't be in November election. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. You can read uh, Paul's story about State Question 820 and what kept it off the November ballot, as well as all his other investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. I'm with Jennifer Palmer, who covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's been reporting a story on a call to ban books in school communities across the state. Jennifer, what have you found? The bottom line is there have been a lot of really loud, vocal kind of book challenges that we see in the news and on social media. But these really have not resulted in very many actual formal complaints filed with schools, and even fewer um, books actually banned. Well, we've been hearing a lot about it. Are book bans more common today? They are more common, according to the American Library Association that tracks this sort of thing across the country. But I think the biggest difference is the way that these book challenges are coming about is very different than you know, 10, 20 years ago where back then it would have been a parent who, you know, objected to one book that their student was reading and they would challenge that particular book. Um, In this case now, and the American Library Association has found this, that um, a lot of these challenges are for long lists of books. Um, So these are being spread on social media, which is generating some outrage, and then the parents Um, are coming to their school board meetings with a list of books and they're challenging those for all students in the community that go to those schools, not just their own. 
Your story looks at three different communities and how challenges to books are affecting each of those. Where did you focus? We focused on Stillwater, Tulsa, and Norman. Well, let's start with Stillwater. What's happening there? Stillwater is really interesting. Their um, their school board has faced a lot of um, public comment and complaints about the way they've handled some things. Kind of what we've, you know, mirroring what we've seen nationally started with COVID precautions and the masks. There was a lot of outrage over that. Then it kind of moved into the um, transgender bathroom use. And then that waned after the legislative session and right before school started, it was all about books. And now they've just been inundated with complaints um, about books. But like I said earlier, very, I mean, only one formal complaint. So they've had hours and hours of, you know, school board meetings talking about this issue, but it's only resulted in one actual formal complaint. That book wasn't even found on the shelves. It was lost years ago. How about Tulsa? Tulsa is really interesting to me, and I'm kind of surprised it hasn't gotten more attention. Um, in that case, the district pulled two books off the shelves before school started, like back in July. But they pulled those books to review them. Um, it's not permanent yet. Um, they're going to have a committee review them based on a viral social media post. So again, it was not uh, a parent for filing a formal complaint. It was this social media account, and then it was shared a bunch of times, and the district decided to pull it, um, pull two books. The other interesting thing is um, Joy Hoffmeister, state superintendent, also um, publicly um, asked the district to pull those books and called them pornography, both of which was really kind of a it was different for her. She's normally very much on the side of local control, trusting the schools to do the right thing and the, and the librarians there. But in this case, she came out um, just like many of the other complainers um, about these books and um, said they needed to pull them. And any other district that has similar titles should also remove them. And Norman, we've talked about before, but what's the latest there? Yeah, so Norman, you know, made national headlines, of course, with this English teacher who resigned over um, a district policy about classroom books um, related to House Bill 1775. And kind of the, the fallout of that really has been some community outrage over book banning and supporting the teacher. Um, you know, the teacher resigned she was um, targeted on social media and had some death threats, had to leave her home. Um, and the community has made these signs and T-shirts and the bookstores in Norman have really kind of rallied behind her and behind freedom to read, um, you know, just kind of as an issue um, that they believe the students should have the freedom to read anything they want. Well, what about the other side? What about the would-be book banners? What do they say? Right. So that's kind of um, been pitched as a parental rights issue, right? Like they say, uh, it's kind of an extension of some of the other issues we've seen since COVID um, that, you know, parents have the right to make the decision for their their child um, and, 
you know, this is an extension of that, that, you know, parent, uh, children shouldn't be exposed to these types of books. Um, but, you know, the flip side of that is a lot of folks will point out, sure, but what you're doing when you're banning a book is you're taking it away from every child in that school, right? Not just your own. So it kind of goes much further than than they would let on. Yeah, the other side of that is uh, you you certainly have the right to control what your child reads, but not necessarily what my child reads, right? Is the right. other the other argument? How are school librarians handling book challenges? You know, I I really feel for these librarians. They've really been thrown into this culture war issue. Um, school librarians are really highly trained. I mean, they you know it's a position that requires a master's degree. They do a lot of um, training on how to handle. Um, their book collection, how to curate books, how to, you know, um, select books for all varieties of readers, right? I mean, this is a community with a very diverse audience. Um, They're competing with kids on smartphones, you know, Um, and in all of these schools, there is a process to handle these book challenges. And everything I found was that they're following the process in most cases. And that involves a community a committee that's set up to, you know, read the book in its entirety, not just the page that was shared on social media and evaluate the book. Um, but, you know, librarians are stretched really thin right now and, and they're being pulled into those committees to, to now do a lot of this evaluation. Uh, you know, I think maybe it's worth mentioning because I, I got interested in this topic in Edmond, right, where there was some social media uh, hype over over banned books. And um, uh, PEN America was uh, the organization that, um, uh, you know, champions uh, the cause. And uh, they had both Edmond and I think it was Broken Arrow uh, that had a list, long list of, of books. Bristow. Uh, it was Bristow, right, that, that were banned. Um but some of that was based on the American Library Association, which you mentioned earlier, and how how those organizations define a banned book. And um, it struck me that that the language used when we're talking about restricting what's in a library or what's in a school classroom um, really weighs into this. And a, a banned book isn't necessarily what you think it is when you hear that phrase, which is kind of an inflammatory phrase, right? And and that the situation you mentioned in Tulsa, where they pulled two books off the shelf while they were being reviewed, um, uh, under some of those national definitions, that's a banned book, even if they put it back later, right? That's right. PEN America has a really very strict definition of banned. I mean, if it's removed from the shelf for one day, it's banned, and I, I don't think that's entirely accurate. And I, you know, did not use that definition in our story for our reporting. Um, you know, to me, that's a challenge. Now, most schools do have policies that require, and and I think the national guidelines, too, support this, that keep the books on the shelves while they're being reviewed. Um, and, you know, in Tulsa, they didn't do that but their policy doesn't specify that. So it's just kind of, you know, one of those things where, like we see in Oklahoma, there's local control. So every school district has their own policy for how to handle book challenges. Why did you decide to write this story? I've seen, I mean, there's been a lot of news stories. So, you know, for us to jump in there, um, 
we saw a lot of misinformation going out, um, a lot of facts that have been kind of misconstrued um, even recently and wanted to kind of set that record straight, but also just really wanted to kind of explain the process. Like we talked about it um, in terms of how do librarians choose what books get on the shelves? Like how does that process work? And we wanted to kind of um, put a really, you know, clear and concise explainer out there for people to understand this process better and then understand what's new and what's different right now. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. You can read Jennifer Palmer's uh, story about the issue of banning books uh, in Oklahoma schools on our website at oklahomawatch.org, where you can also sign up for her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. During an interim study held just last week, a legislative panel examines solutions to modernize Oklahoma's Open Meetings Act. Democracy reporter Keaton Ross is here to discuss how those proposed changes could affect public access to officials. Keaton, could you explain to us the uh, Open Meetings Act and its purpose? The Open Meetings Act is it essentially lays the groundwork for how public meetings should be conducted in the state. Uh, it's about 50 or so years old. Um, and it, it basically states, you know, you have to give public notice. You have to allow for public comment. Uh, here's what a quorum is and the purpose of that. So all of the public bodies in the state uh, that uh, it, there are, maybe some different exceptions and rules to what constitutes a public body under the Open Meetings Act, but most of them fall under this state law. And uh, much of the purpose, uh, Keaton, is to make sure that public bodies are conducting public business publicly, right? That uh, people who have an interest in whatever they're discussing are able to see and hear what they're talking about and uh, how the votes are going, that that drives uh, much of that transparency, doesn't it? That's that's right. Yeah, just making sure that they're they're operating publicly for sure. Now, several provisions of the act were loosened a bit at the start of uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic, right? Yeah. So it they were loosened to allow for virtual meetings um, where you would have people coming in via video conference, and you had public comment via uh, video. So you were, you were having these remote meetings that those special rules expired briefly um, in November, 2020. But then when the, the legislature came back in 2021, they were, they were extended again for another year um, from February, 2021 uh, for another year or so. Now, over the past several months under the regular rules, uh, what kind of obstacles have public officials run into? Yeah, so the way the law is written, um, for example, there's part of the law that says there are special circumstances where someone can appear for a meeting via video conference, but the the language of the law was written in the late 2000s when the technology hadn't advanced, and most people, if they were video conferencing, they would be in their office or another public space. So in the law, it says that if you're video conferencing in, you have to provide your address and allow any member of the public to come in to watch you. Uh, well, that gets complicated when maybe you come down with COVID or you're sick and you're at home trying to tune into a meeting and you 
you have to post your home address and, and open your door up while you have COVID. Uh, so some of it's just the law was written at a certain time and the, maybe the technology, uh, the technology is advanced and the law is maybe, maybe becoming a bit obsolete. Now, some public officials uh, and their advocates want the option to appear virtually at any meeting. Why is that? So what was discussed uh, by a few folks at the interim study was that you have some of these public bodies, maybe they're nonprofits that that receive grants, uh, federal grants that are subject to the Open Meetings Act, and they're smaller, and maybe you're trying to get board members in if if you have folks who live in the in the panhandle or the southeastern corner of the state, well, that's you know three four hour drive there, and then that same drive back to get to Oklahoma City or Tulsa or an, another major city. Uh, so some of the the thought process there is that if you allow for more virtual attendance, you might be able to get participation from these folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to drive and, and attend every meeting in person. Well, certainly more convenient for public officials to be able to uh, attend a meeting electronically, but what's the counter argument? What's the downside of that? Yeah, the downside is part of having a public meeting is that, you're, you know, you're supposed to be open and available to the public. So if you're there in person and maybe you're a reporter trying to catch that person or even just a a citizen with a with a problem and you want to ask a person how they voted or or just meet with them face to face um it's a lot easier to dodge uh that you know those those kind of interactions virtually um you know you can ignore a phone call or an email easier than maybe someone coming up to you in person so i think that's the counter argument is with these public officials they should be out in public conducting their business regularly for that purpose. Well, uh, there, there's some more complicating factors to that, uh, too, as I understand it, right? For example, um, as you alluded to, there's a certain amount of public pressure that goes with having uh, an audience at a meeting if there's a controversial vote, right? You have to, you have to face all those people, uh, which if you're, you're attending electronically, is a lot easier to do emotionally, right? Than if you got a, a room full of uh, potentially angry constituents or parents or or whatever. Um, the the other problem though is that you know as we we've all done Zoom meetings or uh, Google Meets or whatever, uh, and there is uh, always an option to uh, turn off your video uh, temporarily. Uh, it, and I've wondered, you know. It, is there any assurance there that uh, the person's actually in attendance, right? What what stops them from just, uh, you know, dialing in and then uh, turning off their video stream and walking away for the duration of the meeting? Yeah, and I was at the part of that interim study in person, and that, that was discussed as a possible stipulation, like if we're going to allow virtual meetings on occasion or under these circumstances, like – we, we might want to put it into statute that you have to leave your video camera on. Uh, you can't, you can't go dark in that, in that degree. So that's, that's certainly part of the equation. Are there also some concerns with, uh, you know, technological glitches and failures? I mean, if you're, if you're at the meeting in person, you're either there or you're not right. We've all had issues uh, on electronic meetings during the pandemic where, 
uh, the Wi-Fi went south and the the feed froze and that kind of thing. Was that discussed at all? That that was discussed, and part of that certainly too, especially in rural parts of the state that may not have as reliable service as the metropolitan areas. Uh, that's that's certainly a concern, and it, it's funny you bring that up because at the meeting they had. Uh, the mayor of Alva was there to to discuss it kind of from the rural perspective, tuning in to the capital and his his feed cut in and out for part of the meeting. Um, so that certainly still part part of the uh, thing to look at with these virtual meetings is that service, especially in the rural areas, can can be less than reliable and have people cutting in and out and that can that can be disruptive. Well, uh, I. I think one of the other concerns I'd have with that is that, you know, sometimes when we're on those electronic meetings, our feed cuts out and we, we're not aware of it, right? And uh, so maybe a, a public official may say something uh, important that gives context or gives, you know, uh, and nobody hears it and nobody's aware that he that he said it and he's not aware that nobody heard it. Yeah. Uh, you know, those uh, kind of tech problems could uh potentially create some problems with electronic attendance, uh, or at least part of the discussion I've heard has suggested that that may be a hurdle. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, was there any kind of middle ground uh, proposed in the interim study? The The middle ground discussed was essentially a quota or like if, let's say you're meeting, you meet on average once per month, 12 times a year, the law might allow for you to attend virtually three times or 25% of the meetings, uh, setting that groundwork like, you know, you should try to be there in person, in person is best, but there's maybe an understanding that sickness happens, emergencies happen, and it's nice to have that second option of, of appearing virtually on occasion. Uh, if uh, public officials can uh, attend the meeting virtually, uh, what about the public? Uh, more convenient for them too, right? If I, uh, if there's a meeting maybe in one of the metro areas and I live in a rural area and would like to attend the meeting, it's uh, also more convenient for me to stay at home uh, instead of driving in. Was there any discussion about virtual attendance by the public? There was. There was also discussion, as, as you mentioned, with it being more convenient under the the special COVID rules, a lot of folks noticed more people tuning into the meetings virtually, um, more participation, th those sorts of things. So that was uh, maybe maybe a positive of of those special rules going forward. As far as uh, you know, making sure that virtual public common is allowed, that sort of thing. It was discussed. Uh, I didn't catch any like concrete policy plans in that regard. Of course, that if you're going to require something for the whole state, that's that's going to be easier in certain parts of the state with better technology. Um, but it'll it'll certainly be interesting to watch when the the legislature convenes in February. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. You can read uh, Keaton's story about the interim study on the Open Meetings Act and all his other work at oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation 
for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization. That means that we rely on readers and listeners like you to help fund the important work that Oklahoma Watch does throughout the state. We're in the middle of our spring fundraising campaign. If you enjoy the work we do, if you feel as though you benefit from it and the state of Oklahoma benefits from what we do, please take a moment to visit our website and make any contribution that you're comfortable with, $5 a month, $10 a month, whatever's comfortable for you will help keep this important work going. Visit our donations page at oklahomawatch.org.